0: of my heart don't be all else to me, save that thou... let's begin with a word of prayer gracious lord jesus even as you came to bear our sin and infirmities we think about and laugh about our infirmities but we know that there are deeper forces at play even in simple situations like this one Bless us, Lord, as we come now to your word for conviction and for hope. Fill us with your spirit to come to a right understanding of your word and its application to our lives. And this we ask in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. I'll take over from here. So these words... I'd rather be a mystery than she desert me. The fear of rejection is another one of the reasons we hide. Last week we talked about how we hide and God seeks. We hide because when we speak, we reveal ourselves. We may reveal things about ourselves we don't even know about ourselves. That's what gives rise to sayings like this one by Abraham Lincoln. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. (laughs) (laughs) If you speak about... In speaking, you reveal something about yourself. If you're somebody who likes to gossip... Here's what may happen if you approach me with a juicy little tidbit. You may or may not tell me something that's true about that other person, but you will certainly tell me something about yourself. We were visiting a Victorian uh, mansion a couple of years ago and they had some postcards from the era there. I grabbed one and, and took a scan of it. I'm going to show it to you. Take a quick look at this. This is like those ink blots. you can see two ways. So is that Satan or is that two ladies gossiping? The correct answer is yes. (laughs) You've told me, if if you come to me with a juicy tidbit of gossip, that you're the kind of person who likes to gossip. And I know what to expect from you when my back is turned. In speaking, we reveal ourselves. Which is why, in the great network of conversations that forms up human life, the wise person is often silent. Because what happens when we reveal ourselves through our speech is that we give people something that they could misuse, abuse, or even use to victimize us. If you've heard about cancel culture, this is what it's about. We give away something we cannot take back when we reveal ourselves. And it becomes an instrument that can be used to our detriment because here's the reality you know when you speak that everyone around you is a sinner. And so are you. You don't know to what use your self revelation may be put. And so it's not just that we hide because we've sinned, we hide because we know other people sin. And we don't want to be victimized. It's kind of a healthy self-protectiveness that complicates our situation. Do you see now how sin impacts your life even when you're not actively sinning? This is what St. Paul is talking about in Romans 8. The powers and principalities with which we do war. The psychologist, Christopher Bolas, uh, opened my eyes to the, the idea of evil as a process. I tended to think, I've i always thought of evil as just like a person, I guess, like Satan or a force at work in the world. But what he reveals in his work, uh, I believe it was from Cracking Up, from his book Cracking Up, where he talked about that evil is a process Which all of us intuitively understand and that intuition is embedded in the the deepest stories, the stories we pass on from generation to generation as human beings, including, of course, our own most important stories in the Holy Scriptures. So here's here's the process he details as evil. And you'll see, think back to a time in your life when you experienced something that was obviously recognizable as evil and see if this doesn't fit for you. First, the evil one, the perpetrator, presents themselves as good to the intended victim. Then, the evil one offers some needed help because psychologists like big words. He calls this the creation of false potential space. (laughs) But there's an offer of needed help. And when the intended victim takes the perpetrator up on that, they're dependent upon the person, dependent on their advice, maybe dependent on their active help, and that's a malignant dependency. In an era when everybody talks about codependency, maybe that's a something, this is maybe a more helpful concept. After that, finally, the reality of the hidden evil is revealed by the perpetrator, and he calls this the shocking betrayal. Then Because they're so surprised, when we're surprised, we don't have all our faculties about us. We're in crisis mode. We're in shock. And so the victim loses their adult coping mechanisms and cries out for help. And to this, he he refers to this as radical infantilization. And finally, trust in the world and the possibility of help and the hope of any kind of good outcome to the situation is destroyed. And this he refers to as psychic death. Do you see how the pattern fits the book of Genesis beautifully? Evil presents itself as good. The evil one offers help. Now here's the problem that the serpent has. Adam and Eve have no needs in Eden. So he needs to create a need. You know God's holding out on you. God's afraid, you're going to be just like him. Boy, talk about the original half-truth. God is hoping they'll be like him in moral character. They rely on the serpent's advice, and that's the malignant dependency. They take his advice, and then the shocking betrayal. As the book of Genesis says, their eyes were opened. And then they run and they hide, terrified of what they've become and what they've done. I almost could picture them that one picture I had last week, they're kind of hiding behind the bushes. I could almost picture them sucking their thumbs. They were terrified that, like that. And finally, expulsion from the garden, psychic death. Evil gets into our lives as a process because we don't know who the serpent is. The serpent presents themselves always as good and offers something we need or desperately want. So, not knowing who the serpent is, we keep ourselves silent. We don't reveal ourselves through our speech. But do you notice that the scriptures start in exactly the opposite way? The scriptures begin with God speaking. Speaking creation into existence. And by speaking, what does God reveal about Himself? Well, how does He create the world? Good. Beautiful. Beautiful filled with richness and teeming with life. This is the world that God created so we know what the heart of God is and God is so excited by this creation He wants to share it with others. Now it's not this, this is please be clear, this is not because God is lonely. I've heard bad sermons like that, like God created Adam and Eve because He was lonely. God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's always had company. But He wanted to share it with a a creature made in his own image, which means that it could appreciate what God had made in this good good creation. So in the creation of Adam and Eve, these people made in his own image, there's something they can do that the rest of creation can't do. And I think as good a, a guess at what that was, was they could appreciate its beauty. Do you know with all of the other ways in which we're like other mammals... And you can go on the Discovery Channel and catch all that stuff. Do you know the one thing that no other animal shows any sense of whatsoever, including the highest of the primates? Aesthetics. No sense of beauty. Chimpanzees make tools occasionally. They don't make art. Do you know what archaeologists find at every human settlement, no matter how old? Not pottery. Not tools. Jewelry. Jewelry is part of what distinguishes our ancestors archaeologically from everything else around them. God wants to share this beautiful creation he's made with Him them. And here's, this is the same artist I shared with you last week, Thomas Cole. Um, this is his Garden of Eden painting. Um, here's Adam and Eve down in here. I think one of the, one of the pieces of artistic genius about this painting, when you ever, if you ever get to see it in person, is how small Adam and Eve are. And how great and huge the gift is that God has prepared for them. All for their enjoyment. All so that they could be enraptured by this good thing that God has made. But then... then comes the process of evil. Then comes the presentation of good and the creation of a problem and the malignant dependency... Then comes the shocking betrayal and their eyes are opened. There's nothing more pathetic in the scriptures than when Adam points at Eve and says, She made me do it. And Eve points at the snake and says, He made me do it. Sounds just like when I was a little kid and me and my three brothers were afraid of who was going to get in trouble. (laughs) Radical infantilization. (laughs) And finally, psychic death. Death their expulsion from the garden. The same painting I showed you last week where Eden is over here and here's where they're stuck on the other side of this barrier. Here's the close-up of Adam and Eve being expelled, becoming isolated from God and consequently from each other because now they always had to wonder where the serpent would pop up Next who the person presenting as good would be, who is actually evil. And of course, their son Cain would prove the case. But the whole of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, could be characterized faithfully as God's finding a way to cure us of our isolation, to rescue us out of our self-imposed exile that we have been, into which we've been plunged by our sin. God has designed us for infinite, eternal happiness, communion with Him. Heaven's not a better place, like we often say at funerals. It's a different kind of existence wherein you're swept up into the love and life of the Trinity which is always one of self-giving love one to another. This is what God made us for. And this offer of a relationship with Him is different than any other relationship into which you could enter Because whereas in every other relationship in our lives, even with the people we love most and who are most intimate with us, there are things we are hiding from them for fear of rejection. Things maybe we're even hiding from ourselves for fear that if we see it, we'll reject ourselves and everyone around us will isolate us even more. God already knows all that stuff about you. God knows the deepest, darkest, blackest parts of your heart. In this picture, which, if you haven't seen it before, I actually think it's by a guy named Blackheart, um, the, the artist's name, but the man holding the nails and the hammer. God knows this about you, as we just heard from 1 Samuel, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And still, and still, He reaches out to you, to us, to humanity to save us, knowing what we will do to him. If you're of a certain age, you may recognize this picture. It's from the movie The Passion of the Christ. It's the only time the author and director, who was more famous for being an actor than anything, appears on screen. When Mel Gibson shot the movie, he stayed behind the camera, except when the moment came for the close-up of driving the nail into the flesh of Christ, then he insisted that it be his own hand on the nail. Mel Gibson knew he was a sinner. Thanks to the tabloids, we all know Mel Gibson's a sinner. (laughs) But we should all equally see our own hand on that nail. Jesus Christ came to die came to rescue those he knew would snap and snarl and finally strike at his hand of grace. Like a wounded dog, not knowing what we do, we want to prefer our isolation to the rescue intended for us. There's a massive, massive gap between us and God. We are isolated by our own sin. And God uses His Word to penetrate that isolation. As the prophet Isaiah said, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God has been doing this from the time of our exile on. Penetrating our isolation with His Word, His promises, His law. All of which are meant to forgive and give us a way home. And finally, that word which shall not return to him empty but accomplish that for which he sent it took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, came to dwell with us, came to bear our burdens, came to suffer at our hands. That we might be saved and restored to communion with Him. The Word entered into this the same way God's Word has always entered into our existence to renew and save us. It's a sharp, sharp instrument. It's not a delicate instrument, folks. As we just heard from the book of Hebrews, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, but it is not a weapon wielded to kill us. Not in the fullest sense. To kill our false selves, absolutely. (laughs) But it's sharp like a scalpel, designed to cut away... That which ails us, that we might finally be healed of the wounds caused to us by sin. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as that Word became flesh, God was finally vulnerable. When the serpent wanted to hurt God in the garden, all he could do is hurt the people God loved because God was invulnerable. But now in the person of Jesus Christ, God is vulnerable as He has never been before. And from His foot weariness after a long day's walking and preaching and teaching, to His agony in the garden, to the cross of our salvation, God's vulnerability becomes the key to our salvation, the very key that unlocks the gates of Hades and grants us a return, a way back to the communion for which we were created in the first place. The Word made ink testifies faithfully to the one who is the Word made flesh. That's why Luther said you should look at the Bible as though it's a manger carrying the Christ child to you. That that vision that the Scriptures bring us is a faithful one. When um, Gilbert Mylander, who's one of the greatest Christian ethicists who the last century produced... Um, He's also a great lover of C.S. Lewis. And I was reading an article by him after he had retired as a professor at Valparaiso University. And um, he was talking about C.S. Lewis. He said, you know, when I was a young man, I loved C.S. Lewis because there was no soldier I would rather have beside me in a firefight. But as I've become an older and now an old man... Come to love C.S. Lewis more as a companion on my journey who can bring me to a window and point me th- to look through it and show, us, show me where we're all going. When he said that, it put me in mind of this, these words from Lewis's wonderful sermon, which I shared parts of before with you, the, the Weight of Glory. Lewis says this, he says, At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. The leaves of the New Testament are not leaves of grass. They will not turn to dust and be blown away like the grass in Isaiah's prophecy because the word of the Lord endures forever. And they will keep bringing to us Jesus Christ the word made flesh that we may cling to him in faith until we are embraced by him in glory. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Lord Jesus Christ Heavenly Father and Spirit we thank you that you were not content to let us be in our self-imposed isolation the result of our sin but instead from the very time of our exile had been reaching out to break our isolation through your word until finally your word became flesh to dwell among us and we could see his glory. Grant us through the words of Scripture to continue to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see him resplendent upon the cross and even more resplendent in his resurrection victory that as we, not yet made fresh and pure, but still struggling with our sin that we may be constantly encouraged, return to you in the repentance of which Lent is but a rehearsal, and be filled with your light and your love, that embracing what you have given us through your Son, we may reach out in trust and hope, finally being conformed to his likeness, that we might break the isolation of others. This we ask in your precious and holy name. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best in the day and the night. Sleeping that crosses my life